This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio Cars. Like most of you, I drive a car or a truck. Well, occasionally, I need tires or just a simple plug or patch. Well, my friends down at Just Tires is the place to go when that need arises. Give them a call at 727-585-9271. They have a convenient location right at 1645 Clearwater Largo Road. You can't miss them. So for all your tire needs, cars, trucks, trailers, new used or just a repair, give Just Tires a call. 727-585-9271. Oh, yeah, and be sure and check out their website, JustTires.net. Do you ever feel the need for speed? Well, experience the thrill of indoor karting at Tampa Bay Grand Prix, located at 12350 Automobile Boulevard in Clearwater. Call 727-527-8464. They have state-of-the-art electric carts racing around a quarter-mile road circuit. Bring your family, friends, and teammates for some speed, fun, and competition at Tampa Bay Grand Prix Indoor Karting Facility. Call 727-527-8464. Visit their website at tampabaygp.com. All the top drivers are here at Nürburgring for the European Grand Prix. Rain just before the race causes last-minute changes of tyres, one of the important features on this, the most demanding of all the Grand Prix circuits. This is the race which could break the Ferrari stranglehold on the Grand Prix events of 1961. And the man to do it is Britain's Sterling Moss. His Lotus is underpowered, and so is that of Inners Island. But this is a circuit which calls for skill rather than power. The reigning world champion, Jack Brabham, in Cooper number 1, is without a Grand Prix win this year. But today, he's got the new V8 Climax engine. Fastest in practice was American Phil Hill in Ferrari number 4. The starter's flag is raised, and off they go, 15 laps of the 14.1-mile circuit. And every lap contains more than 170 curves and bends. Brabham and Moss are fighting for the lead. out already but he's not injured and Phil Hill in the Ferrari number four is just holding Sterling Moss in Lotus number seven. The rest of the field are already trying to sort themselves out. They can't afford to be left. End of the first lap and Sterling Moss is in front but he'll need all his driving skill if he's to hold off Phil Hill in the Ferrari who's only a few seconds behind. is driving like a master now and he's well clear of the field. The two Ferraris of Hill and Von Trebs are trying to make ground. They both want championship points. Moss is more than 10 seconds ahead now and only an accident could stop him. The Green Lotus, number seven, is still in front, and as the race goes on, Moss shows that he's untouchable on a circuit which calls for driving skill. And in spite of being underpowered by nearly 50 brake horsepower, Moss streaks home to win by 14 seconds. It's a great performance by Sterling Moss, and it brings him up to third place in the Racing Drivers World Championship. Once again, he shows the way home to the mighty Ferraris, who take second and third place. Radio and Cars. Hi everybody, this is David Hobbs, racing driver and commentator for Speed Channel, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, listeners, welcome, and you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your host, Robert. Hey, run to your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live, streamed on the Internet. Well, you guys can. I can't, because somebody took the computer out of here. Hey, Billy! Billy! Hello! Is this thing you, don't on? A, you don't need a computer on in there. I, I can see it right there. <laughs> you, you can see yourself right there. <laughs> okay, well, now i got to look through two sets of windows. But, yeah, okay. So, uh, and like I said, run to uh, Google, Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studio. You got that song queued up in there? Yeah, what song? Yeah, I got that song queued up. Hey! 
You know what? Last week, what was it? Last week? I guess it was. Last weekend, we uh, we gave away some tickets last week to, well, a number of things. You know, callers. Oh, by the way, the 11th caller, if you call in 11, that's number 11. That's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Okay, the 11th caller gets a $10 gift certificate to eat at Krabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. Okay, now, last week, we actually had a couple call-ins, and so we got some winners to go to the Strass Center to see Adam Carolla and... Uh, Dennis Prager. And I'll tell you what, it was a pretty good show. It was somewhat political, not too bad, and somewhat comical, and somewhat social, and somewhat, uh, you know, just just a cool show. But anyway, afterwards, I got to uh, spend a few minutes with Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager, and I got an opportunity to invite both of them on the radio show. Now, granted, this is not a political show, but they both happen to be in the cars, but Adam Carolla is very seriously into cars, so that should be a good show. Now, I just have to tone him down a bit so he doesn't get carried away and go off tangent on us, but, uh, but super nice guy, so I look forward to that. But anyway, I've been in contact with the people at Ruth Eckerd, Straz, and the Mahaffey. So, guess what, listeners? In the future, I may be getting some tickets to give away. So you callers, tell your friends, everybody to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars weekdays at 7 p.m., 7 to 8. Listen to some groovy music, some cool old commercials and media stuff from back in the old days. And, of course, the occasional superstar, legendary race car or automotive guy as a guest on our show. Anyway, but the uh, Strass Center and Ruth Eckert and Mahaffey has agreed to supply us with some tickets for our call-in listeners. Okay, so that's good. That's good. Anyway, what do we got this weekend? Oh, well, if you happen to have uh, the time and the spare money in your pocket, Auburn is this weekend. Okay, so up there in Auburn, Indiana. And that is a great venue, by the way, because uh, the museum is open. The Auburn Court Duesenberg Museum is open. It's a three, four-day festival. It's not just an event. It's a festival. They got a huge car show. They got a huge swap meet. They got a stunning, amazing exhibit at the Auburn Court Museum. And as well as they have the... uh, um, the Auctions of America is up there going on, and there's probably about four, five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred cars. I'm not sure what, but you'll see all kinds of cool stuff. Now, it'll be interesting to see what the results are from this upcoming weekend, because two weeks ago we had the uh, Monterey Car Fest or Car Week, and the numbers. I mean, there was 262 million dollars gross this year in cars. Okay, the one percent, and uh, you know it's just amazing, and that is 70 million over the year before. So the Monterey's kind of an anomaly. You know, it's just uh, the, the numbers that those, the records and the quality of cars, the caliber cars that show up in Monterey on the Monterey Peninsula, the coast for that event is uh, just, just absolutely amazing. As a matter of fact, our guest that'll be on later this evening was a uh, judge at the Pebble Beach Concourse. Because they dress when they dress. Oh, hey, is, our, is this our first song, Billy? Dressed to get dressed. It's only a hunch, but I'll bet you a bunch He wears suspenders, a belt, and a vest From the tip of his toes to his head He looked like an unmade bed You've either got or you haven't got style If you got it, you stand out of a flower's not a flower if it's wilted A hat's not a hat till it's tilted You've either got or you haven't got class How it draws the applause of the masses When you wear lapels like the swellest of swells You can pass any mirror and smile You've either got or you haven't got Got or you haven't got Got or you haven't got If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship par 72, plus another 9-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends 
at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, and nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Oh, we had a, we, we, <laughs> we had, had a, a caller. We had a, we had a winner. Good, J- good, J- good, good. Jason from Pinellas Park. Jason from Pinellas Park. Super. We'll get his info. Hey, we're back. Guess what? Couple things going on this weekend. We have Vets at the Pier Car Show Sunday down at the St. Petersburg Pier down there off uh, Central Avenue. Sumter County Fairgrounds Swap Meet this weekend also Sunday. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you got like 15 seconds to say whatever you want to say. 15 seconds. Okay. Oh yeah. Tomorrow night, Quaker Steak and Lube. Now that we don't have to worry about a storm, everybody show up down there for the car show. And don't forget, also September 15th, Largo High School new car show. Okay. Saturday and Sunday, Showtime Speedway. Go visit my friend Yoho and the rest guys down there at Showtime Speedway. They got Roundy Round on Saturday and drag racing on. Friday. Ready, okay. for, ready for your interview. We got an interview coming up. Okay, we're going to go right to a commercial and then we'll be right back. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727 541 1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727 541 1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And I'll tell you what, my next guest is a legend, and he really needs no introduction. But I am very, very delighted to have him on the show with us this evening. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show the legendary race car driver, Sir Sterling Moss. Sir, Sir Sterling Moss, how are you this evening? Uh, very well. D- don't get confused. The correct, the correct thing is you just say Sir Sterling. You don't bring, bring the Moss in. Oh, okay. All right. So I'll try you that one. You can call me what you like, actually. I'll answer the questions. Okay. Well, gee, I am truly delighted to have a legendary race car driver like yourself uh, on the radio show this evening. This is just really, really great. So why don't you go ahead and share with our listeners this evening a little bit of how you got started in the car business, or car racing, I should say. Well, my my father raced uh, at uh, Brooklands, and then he raced at Indianapolis in, uh, in 1914 or 15. And my mother had done trials and rallies uh, in England, so I was brought up with cars. My father was actually a dentist, but uh, that's how it started, and, and uh, it seemed the the right thing for me to do. Now, well, how old were you when you first got behind the wheel of a uh, car and kind of oh, well, determined? I had my own car on, on the farm uh, when I was six years old. I had an Austin 7. I couldn't go on the road with it, but I had that, uh, that was my first vehicle that, that uh, I could drive around the place. So that obviously taught me quite a lot. Wow. What part of England did you grow up in? Oh, Bray, Bray, which is near Maidenhead, uh, which is sort of 30 miles from London. Okay, so that's uh, north, south, east, west of London? Uh, west, west of London. Okay, good. Um, so when you first got into your 
cars and you were really enthusiastic about it. How about you, some of your peers, some of your friends? Were they interested in cars as much as you were, or was that just something? Um, no, not really. Not not the ones from school. Uh, I mean, obviously, when I started to race, I met a lot of people and got to know them. But right. but when I was at school, uh, it didn't come up. I mean, you know, I wasn't driving or racing or anything then. And I had my first. Um, I got a driving license when I was sixteen, but had my first race, uh, which was just a sprint because of that. At that time, the war was just over and there was no racing. And there was hill climbs and things like that. And that, that was when I was 17 years old. And then the following year, uh, I'd been, uh, somebody had seen me racing and said, look, would I drive for their team yeah, going around Europe? Because in Europe, uh, racing would start and, and we had road races. In other words, small towns uh, or big towns, I mean, but places like Aix-les-Bains, what have you, uh, they would, you know, find a circuit and we'd race at the weekend and then uh, drive on to the next race in another country and race there. I mean, I was doing 50 races a year. Wow. And this is when you were, what, 18 years of age? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Now, just go back just for a second. When your father raced in the United States in Indy cars, did you travel with him to the United States? No, no, I mean, I wasn't nowhere near old enough. I hadn't been born. Oh, okay. my, my father raced, uh, and when he married my mother, uh, she sort of said, look, if, if I'm going to marry you, I don't want to get frightened and so on, so will you give it up? Oh, okay. So basically, you could say that it's almost genetics because the racing, which was in your father's blood, then wound up in your blood, and therefore yeah. you consequently became the uh, famous race car that you did, race car driver that you did. That's yeah. great. Well, now tell us a little bit about when you said you raced in all these countries. Was that all through back and forth through Europe? And yeah, the I, UK? I, mean, I, I had a, a supercar, Fessel Vega, and I'd drive from one, which I was on loan from the factory, of course, and I'd drive from one race in one in one country or town, and then the next race the following week could drive that, the car to get there, and then the racing cars would come separately. We'd have practice and that sort of thing, and, and then the race, of course, places like Monaco and so on, and uh, that's how it went. Okay. Now, when you did the rallies, so was the hill climbs and the rallies the first type of racing you got involved with? Yeah, they were because of that. Because as I say, after after the war, we didn't have racing in England because they would they wouldn't allow racing on the roads, and we hadn't got any circuits until a place called Goodwood was built, and uh, that was a few years later, and um, therefore I had to do most of the, the, the actual racing I enjoyed was in Europe and the hill climbs were, were because we hadn't got it in England. Okay. Now, would you say that being able to drive um, on the hill climbs and the rallies probably made you a better driver on an asphalt uh, road oh, course? Oh, certainly. I'm absolutely convinced. I mean, it teach, teaches you car control. I mean, that's the thing you have to learn. And teaches you, know, about late braking and heel and toe and all the other things. And uh, so a very, very necessary sort of build up to it. Why do you think that a lot of rally drivers stay driving rally cars and they don't make the transition over to, let's say, sports car racing or Formula um, One racing? Because, because only some people can make it. I mean, there, there are those people who can make it, and they most of them did. You know, they did rallies and trials first and then came into, into sports car racing and then Formula Three, Formula Two, Formula One, and uh, that, which is the top of the pile, really. When you drove your first Formula One car, what year was that? Uh, well, the first one that I had that was really competitive was 1954. After all that, then I'd had uh, an English car which wasn't competitive with the Europeans at all. So really, I, I started in 54 because in 53, my father had been down to see Mercedes, who were the rumor going around they were coming back to racing. He went to see them at uh, Stuttgart and saw Herr Neubauer, who was the chief. And he said, look, we've seen what he's done. He's done a great job, but uh, we'd like to see him in a car that might win because of the ones he's been driving certainly wouldn't have a chance so they suggested that uh, my father uh, went and got we drove got a 250 f maserati and uh, i was very lucky with that and it had some some success and that that had been neubau came back and asked me to go over to have a tryout at the end of the year okay and that was with mercedes then yeah well, the Mercedes. Yeah, I, mean, I, I was. I hadn't been with Mercedes before. Okay. He called me up because I happened to put my car on pole in the wet at Bern, which was the, which was the Swiss Grand Prix, and it was in front of the Mercedes and everything. And mine was a, a private car, and uh, he said, "Look, we'd like, like you to come over here and, and have a test," which I did at the end of that year. 
Did you, when you made the transition from sports cars and rallies, now when you left rallying and hill climbs, did you go in a sports car before you went into Formula One, or what was the uh, sequence there? Well, the, the first car I did a couple of sprints and so on in a BMW, uh, but then I was signed up to drive a single seater, which was not a competitive one, but gave me a lot of experience going around Europe. Now, I've had a lot of uh, racing car drivers on the show. And um, a lot of them like open-wheel cars, okay? Yeah. Even the ones that race GT cars and so forth. What is your take on it? I mean, do you prefer, is, do you have the same feeling that they do, that the thing about an open-wheel car is you feel like you're more one with the car as opposed to a, an enclosed I, car? Quite frankly, it didn't worry me. I mean, I, I enjoyed sports cars just as much. I mean, in fact, my probably my most important uh, race that I won was a sports car called the Mili Milia, which is a 1,000 miles around Italy on, uh, on road that were only partially closed and, you know, one was flat out. I mean, we're doing up speeds up to 180 miles an hour. Wow. Now, you set a record at the Mille Mille, what, is like 10 hours and 46, just under uh, 11 hours, yeah. correct? No, t- uh, 10 hours, 4 minutes, 7 seconds, yeah. Okay. It was in 1955 with the Mercedes-Benz. Okay, and that's the one where you were co-driving with uh, Fangio? No, that that one that one I had a guy with me called Jenks oh, okay. who, who who we'd made notes on the whole course because I couldn't learn a thousand miles. Okay, and I remember to, to do one lap in practice took two days because five hundred miles a day is about all you could do. Uh huh. Now he was the one that was supposedly a journalist, right, Jenks? Yeah, Jenks was. Yeah. Okay. Now let me ask you another question. Now Mila Mila, describe that track to us a little bit. I mean, back then, is it pretty much? Today, the same course that it was back no, in... 50- no, well, yes, now they have it, but it's only a rally, really. Okay. So what it was, you started at Brescia, which was not northern Italy, not far from Milan, yeah. went across uh, to, to the Adriatic, returned south, got to a place called Pescara, across the mountains, three mountain passes to, uh, to uh, the west coast there, and then came up through Florence and what have you, back to, back to uh, Brescia, where it started. And the first car went, to, to give you an idea of how, how many cars took past, the first, the first car went at uh, 9 o'clock at night, at half-minute intervals until midnight. Then at midnight, they went at one-minute intervals. My car was 722, and that's how many cars, you know, gone. And I wasn't the last car, so it wasn't the last biggest number. So it gives you an idea of how many, I mean, there were, you know, a thousand people driving it. 722 was your number? So you're saying there were 722 in the morning, you see. And and, uh, the cars have been going at minute intervals from midnight. Wow. Okay. Now, how, what what are some of the rules in that particular race? Is that like the Targa Florio, or was that was that? Yeah, like, just like the Targa Florio. I mean, the Targa Florio is in, in Sicily, right. very similar. Obviously, um, the great thing about the Targa, from my point of view, is that going there for week, for quite a few weeks to learn the circuit, I actually got to know the circuit. Mm-hmm. There's no way I could I could have learned a thousand miles, uh, you know, for, for the main race, the the Mille Miglia. Okay. Were the driving characteristics, the road, uh, the terrain, is it very similar between the Mille Miglia and the Targa Florio? Um, no, there was very, very little difference, except obviously that the, the, I mean, in, in Sicily, it was, what, what, the, there were laps at 40, 42 miles a lap, I think, and we did what, uh, about uh, 1,000 kilometers. Wow. You know, it's about six, six seven hours. Now, um, the race in at Le Mans, nineteen fifty-five. Yeah. Do you want to share a little bit of what kind of transpired there? Now, well, you... yeah. I mean, the thing is, I was doing it with Fangio. We we were part of the Mercedes team, mm-hmm. and uh, unfortunately, what happened it really was a guy, an Englishman, came along and went, who was really vying for the to, to, to keep the lead from us, Mercedes and and uh, this Jaguar, Mike Hawthorne, and he pulled in very late, pulled pulled a cross to get into his pits uh, so he wouldn't waste any time coming along in the in the pit area and uh, cut somebody up called Lance Macklin who had to swerve to the left and Levesque who was in a Mercedes following him couldn't avoid him and he took off and literally went through the air and, and crashed and of course over 80 people were killed I mean it was an absolute disaster. Now, was the race stopped at that point in time, or just... No, the, the point was, they, they said, they were saying, look, stop it, but they said, no, absolutely no way. If we stop it, we can't get the ambulances in and out. If the people start to leave, you know, there's disaster. Because, I mean, you're, to, you're talking of probably hundred or 200,000 spectators of this thing. You know, I mean, so it would have been absolutely 
impossible to uh, say stop now everybody's going to go home because they couldn't sort out all the problems what was your position at the time of the accident uh, we were leading you were leading okay yeah. so then what happened mercedes decided to pull out of the race at then yes uh, john fitch actually who was driving one of the cars sort of said to him look i think we should do this which i i must say i didn't agree with him quite honestly but uh, he said i think we should do it uh, we should pull out and so they called neubauer the team manager called up all the mercedes uh, directors that he could get and said what should we do and, and the, they made the decision uh, we, we would retire Oh, that's too bad. Well, the whole incident was a shame, too. But, uh, well, all right, let me ask you a question, too. Another one. Let's digress for a second. Now, you've driven a lot of different cars in your day. You've driven Mercedes, Maserati, Jaguar, Lotus, Cooper, uh, on occasion for... 108, actually. 108 cars. 180 different cars. No, 108. Oh, 108. 108 different cars, yeah. So, of all the cars that you've driven... Uh, let's break it down. In terms of sports cars, which was which would be one of your favorite sports cars that you have oh, driven? The, the greatest sports car ever built, actually, was a 300 SLR Mercedes. Okay. A three-liter car, amazingly, had desmondromic valves, which means you don't get valve bounce, things like that. And was an absolutely amazing car. Now, you made a comment once, uh, and I think there's a quote. It says, I'd rather be, I'd rather lose honorably in a British car than win in a foreign car. Now, having, and you just got through telling me that a Mercedes was one of the greatest cars, and you won yeah, well, numerous times. I, I tried to. I wanted the war just finished, and I wanted to be very pro-British, and I wanted to drive an English car, but quite honestly, they were just after trying all types of different cars, I realized that the only thing I could do was get a, get a foreign car. And uh, so, therefore, in 1954, yeah. uh, I got a Maserati and started with that. Now the Maserati that was in that was Formula One, right? Yeah, that was Formula One. So what now the the Maserati? How did you how how did you perceive that car? I mean, well, was that- we went down to see Maserati and and they sold it. They uh, they they were manufacturing them and selling them, but not many. I mean, because uh, they're hand built. But uh, you could actually buy a Ferrari. You could not at that time. Sorry, you could buy a Maserati at that time. You could not buy a Ferrari. Ferrari didn't sell any cars. Oh, really? Road cars. Okay, so I get it. So the Maserati was basically, if you were an independent or a privateer, you could buy a Maserati. Exactly. But as an independent or a privateer, you could not have a Ferrari unless you were part of the Ferrari team, correct? Exactly, exactly. Oh, okay. Now, how was that with Jaguar and Lotus? Were they like that well, as well? Well, I drove them alongside. I mean, sports cars, I, I would drive Jaguar, and then later Aston Martin, and then and I, sometimes I'd drive Porsche. I'd, I'd drive anything, you know. I mean, I was doing 50 races a year. Wow. Now, you know, it's funny because a lot of the race car drivers that have been on my show, and, uh, and Dan Gurney's one of them, very good driver. Carol Shelby's Fantastic been on Fantastic driver, yeah. They all said the same thing. Even Parnelli Jones, they said, it didn't matter. All we wanted to do was drive. It, nothing, it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about, you know, the pay or the notoriety. We just wanted to drive because we just wanted to race. So whatever car came along, there was no loyalty necessarily with the car brand. No. We just wanted to drive. So was that your position as well? Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and, and the thing you've got to realize is a byproduct, of course, there's very good-looking girls went around racing, too. <laughs> okay, okay. So that, that lightened the scene. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of women, ladies, and girls, we actually had Denise McCluggage on not too long ago, and I know you raced with her on occasion oh, here in the United States. And she, she, was a, she was a good driver, I'll tell you, very fast. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Porsches. Now, you raced Porsches, I say, what, late 50s, early 60s, a few cars, right? Uh, yep, yep. I, I raced Porsche uh, actually through the 50s. Okay. Right up. I was forced out because I had a crash in 1962, and I was racing Porsches and many other cars at that time. What was your thought on Porsche? Sorry? Your thought on Porsche. I mean, as a car, as a race car, what was oh, your... I mean, they were excellent. I mean, they and Ferrari were the two most reliable cars. I mean, it, if the Maserati could have been built by Ferrari, it would have be been even better because it, it was not quite as strong as, as, the, uh, as the Ferrari. Okay. Whereas, whereas of course, the uh, the um, one you said... Uh, Maserati Lotus? No, no, the... Uh, uh, Cooper? Jaguars? Uh, Maserati? Mercedes? Yeah, yeah, well, any any of those actually were all pretty reliable, but, but Mercedes particularly. 
Okay. Well, now, when you say in terms of reliability, and 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 let's just say had Ferrari built the Maserati, would it be fair to say that was it the overall car, or was it mainly the reliability of the engine, the drive line, you know, the transmission, the rear end? What were the 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 problems that you may well, have encountered? The thing you've got to remember, of course, is we haven't got the metals then that they've got today, and cars okay. were not reliable as they are now. I mean, I, I would start in five hundred odd races and only finish in in half that amount uh, because because they just. They they were not the things available that were made for, were made for racing. I mean, there were very few products you could buy that were genuinely made for racing. I mean, you could get brake linings and tires and things like that, but when you start talking to other mechanical bits on the car, uh, they weren't as reliable as they are now. Okay. How about Jaguar? Jaguar's always been a big favorite of mine yeah. in terms of British yeah. cars. Jag- Jaguar are very good. I mean, they're more suited to certain circuits. I mean, Jaguar, the main thing, they wanted to win Le Mans, which, of course, they built a fantastic car, the D-Type, and they won Le Mans. Mm-hmm. They also built a C-Type, um, which was actually the first car ever in the world to run with disc brakes, which right. we developed with, with Dunlops. How about the Aston Martin? Yeah, Aston Martin was an, another car. It was very nice. It hadn't got a very strong gearbox, but it was a, was a, a very nice car to drive. Okay. Now, which one of those did you drive? In which races? All of them. All of them. Okay. Yeah, so I all mean, the. It was one of hundred and eight different types, and that includes, of course, all you know, all those different ones. Uh huh. How about some of the drivers that you raced against? In other words, when you were growing up, who would be some of the people that you kind of looked up to that were kind of inspiring to you in terms of drivers? Well, I mean, the, I mean, Phil Hill certainly was a great driver, came over and won the, won the World Championship. Dan Gurney, who I drove with many occasions, I think was probably one of the, was probably the, the quickest of all American drivers. And, you know, you, you meet these guys, and if you get along well, you'd say, look, would you, like to, would you like to come in this race with me? Oh, wow. Now, let me ask you this, too. You know, having said that, you know, he's an American, or he's French, or he's German, or he's yeah. British. How about the camaraderie between the drivers? Um, oh, tremendous amount. I mean, in those days, we used to go out have for meals together. We'd go shopping together. And, you know, I mean, it was very much closer uh, mm-hmm. than, that, than it is now. Because it was an amateur sport, remember? Not quite amateur. I mean, it was prize money, but it was not the big money that's paid today. Do you think that uh, in those days, were you more of a, um, would you say, like today, a lot of the drivers are just purely drivers. In the old days, it seemed like the drivers also had a good understanding of the cars themselves, as well as being able to work on the cars. Were you in a position to do that, too? Did you work on your cars? Yes, I could set the car up. I could do that. I certainly couldn't design one or anything like that. But I could take a car, because I knew what what understeer was, what oversteer was, how to try and lessen this and and improve that. Uh, I did a lot of development work because you get a car designed by whoever, Colin Chapman or whoever it might be. So you take it out and try to improve it to make it suit your style of driving. So then basically, when you came back in the pits, you give the mechanics and the team the driver feedback, you know, the pros and cons and and things that needed to be changed so that you could be more competitive. Yes, exactly. How about safety? Was safety ever a concern of yours back in those days? Safety. I mean, I remember 1959, I think, uh, somebody said, you know, we, we ought to wear fireproof overalls. And there's some material, I can't remember what it was called, but anyway, we mixed some of this stuff up and we put our dunked our overalls, which, remember, were only like shirt anyway, shirt cotton, but we'd put them in, hang them up, and they looked so bad, so tatty, so, you know, they, they weren't pressed or anything, and so no, nobody bothered to do it. Wow. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the trouble with cars, we, I never raced with a seatbelt, for instance. The reason for that is because I wanted to get out if the car caught fire, because with the cars we were driving, you had, say, 40 gallons of fuel in the back, which was alcohol. And you want, if, it, if it did have any problems, it would likely to catch fire, so we wouldn't wear seatbelts or anything, so you'd get out quickly. Interesting. You know, now, how did you, what was your perspective as a driver, and, and unfortunately, there was, there was always a number of fatalities during the races, and particularly there was yeah. quite a few of them back in those days. How did that affect you as a driver during the race, and did, before your crash, which we'll get into in a minute, did you ever have apprehensions uh, and, and thoughts about, you know, this has got to be crazy? No, no, never did. Really? Um, I like, in fact, one of the reasons I entered motor racing was it was dangerous, because when you're 17, 18 years old, you know, you're crazy and you want to do dangerous things. And certainly uh, motor racing was dangerous, dangerous, and to me, that added to the spice and, then, you know, made you take more care. 
Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so it's if- crazy. I mean, I know that, but that's the way it was. You know, I mean, the the because we raced on ordinary open road, well, not open roads because they were closed off usually, and uh, you know, so. It was just, I mean, take Monaco Grand Prix, for instance. They closed Monaco, and then you've got the, the, the race circuit, which is one, one three-quarter miles a lap. And you race around there for 100 laps. And, uh, you know, that, that was in, in Formula One for, and sports cars, and also in, in, in a Formula Three car. Wow. Now, of all the races that you've raced at, let's, just, let's break it down. Let's just say Europe. What would, what would be one of your most memorable races that you really truly enjoyed and if you had to relive it again which would that be well i um i think monaco 61 quite frankly i mean it was exciting to me because uh, the ferrari had about 40 horsepower more than my car but mine handled a bit better uh, and um I, I was in the lead but my lead never was more in the, in the hundred laps which is three and three quarter hours was never more than because we didn't stop uh, was never more than about three seconds and so whenever we go around a hairpin there were two or three couple of hairpins per lap i could just look to the right and see see who's following which in 61 was uh, richie ginther and and also phil hill they were both within you know literally three seconds of me Un- for 100 laps which is which is what well, then then it took uh, three and three quarter hours so that was you know very exciting and obviously every i can remember going into it every lap saying well i'm trying to do a perfect lap from here and then i do make something not quite right now so well try and do a perfect lap from this position and what were you driving at that time a lotus a lotus okay yeah was uh jimmy clark in that race with you jimmy clark was okay who are some of the other notable drivers oh um dan gurney phil uh phil hill uh graham hill oh wow um, a lot of people Wow. I mean, well, everybody. I mean, that is the, the the most important race, or one of the most important races. So every, every driver would 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 go into it. Okay, so the Grand Prix of Monaco or Monte Carlo, you would say, was probably the pinnacle of F one races in Europe. From my point of view, yes. Okay, interesting. Um, and the other one, I should say straight away, is Nurburgring, which was which was equally difficult and very very exhilarating and so on. But uh, those are the two best, I would say. And how would how did you fare at uh, Nurburg? Nurburgring, I managed to win as well. Okay, super. Now, is it also true that you were the first uh, European driver to win uh, Sebring? I think it was. Yes, it was, and that was in 1953 or four. Okay. And um, Briggs Cunningham asked, "Would I like to, to, to drive the race with his nephew?" And I said, "Yes, let's do it." Well, it was dreadful weather, really bad weather, wet, and my gosh, we had a 1300 Oscar, and won won the 12 hours outright, which was you know quite surprising. Interesting. Now, an Oscar, if I remember correctly, didn't that have something to do with the Maserati brothers? Weren't they involved in the Oscars? Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. The brothers were. Yeah. Okay. The, 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 the brothers sold out uh, the the name or their name, um, you know, with with the Maserati, right. and they they stayed they stayed on making the the Oscars. Okay. Now, when they when you campaigned that car here at Sebring uh, in the early fifties, did they come over here to the United States and help crew on the car and work on the car? No. Briggs Briggs had his own guys. Okay. All right. How about Daytona? Did you race at Daytona back yes, then? Yes, I did. And uh, what? Share some thoughts. I mean, some uh, you know your perspective on the Daytona race. And it was uh, wasn't twenty four hours back then. It was what twelve hours. Uh, twelve what? hours. It was twelve hours. Yes, and I think I won that. And then um, Sebring yeah. was also twelve hours too. Correct. I'm sorry. Which Sebring, Sebring was also yeah, twelve yeah, hours. Sebring was also twelve hours exactly. Okay. And were you driving the same car in both races? Because they're only a couple months apart. No, no, I drove the Oscar at that particular year at, at uh, Sebring, and um, I can't remember which I had at the other one. I can't, uh, probably a Maserati. Hmm. Of all the tracks in the United States, which track would you say would be one of, would have been, or was one of your favorites? Uh, Laguna Seca, I think, actually, in, in California. There was a fabulous short circuit and uh, quite demanding and um, very nice place, you know, up, up, up by San Francisco. Right. Uh, I, w- I would say that probably, that, I would put that one first. Or, or Watkins Glen. Oh, really? Watkins Glen. Okay, the old Watkins Glen when it was downtown before they moved to the new track, or? Yeah, I think I think probably what, the... the uh, I'm not too sure when it switched over, so I'm not the right person to ask about that. But I know when I came over, um, drove there and did enjoy it. 
let me ask you this. Now, talk, we talked earlier about the Mila Mila race, and that's pretty much a road course on legitimate roads. Yes. As absolutely. opposed to a racetrack, let's say like Nürburgring or uh, Erstreichring or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Is there a different mindset that you have when you're on an open road versus a closed course? Uh, there certainly is. Certainly is one has to drive in a different style. Okay. Because the technique of driving is quite different. Because when you're going in on a shorter circuit, say even up to the Targa Florio, 40, 42 miles, I could learn it. Mm-hmm. I could not learn a thousand miles. So therefore, I had this guy beside me just giving me an idea of what corner was coming up. But when you're going round a corner, um, you know, you're, you're right on the limit. So if, if suddenly the corner gets tighter, uh, that's the most difficult thing. So therefore, you have to you set the thing to an oversteer, then put on correction and brake a bit at the same time. And uh, so the technique of that is, is obviously different to if you come into the corner and you know the, and you know where it goes, you know where you turn in, where the apex is and where the exit is but when you don't know where the apex is and it's very difficult to tell when the roads were lined with Italians I mean they say five million spectators I mean they line most of the thousand miles and you couldn't see see where and make your apex before you got got to it Wow now you the crash that you had that was in 1962 and that, yeah. that was at Nürburgring wasn't it no, the crash was a Goodwood, actually. Oh, Goodwood. Okay, I'm sorry. And we still don't know what happened. Oh, you don't know what happened? No, no don't know what I mean, I know we finished up in the bank, but I don't know why. Oh, okay. Whether it was a mechanical failure or what, I just don't know. I was unconscious for a month, and which I suppose didn't help. But uh, So was it that event that basically... That that's point? what forced me out, yeah. The trouble was, it took me three years before I got my concentration back. And uh, not to have concentration in, in racing is, you know, asking to get killed. And racing was dangerous then, and, and it was just not feasible. I went down and did a couple of laps at the circuit to try, try myself out. And I, my speed was near, near enough the same as before. But the trouble was, I, the concent- I had very great problems with concentrating. I mean, I couldn't have I couldn't have concentrated for three hours the length of a Grand Prix. Would Would you say that it was just like a subconscious fear, maybe that? Uh, and the only reason um, I say that is because I've been on a track. I do. I used to vintage race and sports yeah. car race. And if you had a serious mishap, sometimes it's in the back of your mind, and it just almost prevents you from taking chances. And you're, you're, that's always in the back of your mind. W- would that be a fair statement to say that that was kind of in the uh, back well, of your no, mind? I, I would use, you see, that's where you do your concentration to think of something else. Okay, okay. And that's the point, you know, get your mind off that, and, and that had gone. I see, okay. So then what did you do after that? I know you got involved in other businesses. Well, horrible. Here I am, 32 years old, and I've got to work for a living. I mean, I had fun all my life, because from 17 to 32, I've, I've been, you know, just doing what I love doing. Uh-huh. Now suddenly I've got to make a living, and I have no experience. I mean, if, if you know nothing about anything, I could become, shall we say, an estate agent, you know, realtor, uh-huh. or, or one could become an MP, you know, member of parliament. If, if you know nothing about anything, you can fill one of those, one of those boxes, you I see. Okay. So what did you like to do? Well, I, well I, uh, all I could do is my father at that time was retiring, who had been a dentist. He had a lot of different surgeries. And so I then started um, making, you know, making them into flats and re- renting them out. Oh, really? Okay. So I you went got... into real estate, really. Okay. Now, how about motorcycles? Did you ever get into motorcycles? I never did. No, I mean, uh, I, I, I ride a motorcycle. And in fact, now I don't even own a car in London. I've got a, a scooter. Uh, but I've ne- never been on motorbikes, no. Okay. Tell us how you got the, the I guess, is knighthood the correct terminology? Yeah, yeah. How, how did that all come about? Well, the... the your name is put forward by certain people. I don't know how it all works. And uh, for, I, I was knighted. I was given my knighthood for for services to motor racing. Okay. In other words, because I'd done well in motor racing, and that was it. And uh, you know, I, I was done. Actually, I, Prince Charles knighted me, and he put the uh, sword on my shoulder, one then on the other, and. Uh, he said to me, it's been a long time coming, um, because it was quite late. And I said, yes, sir, but it would have gone to the wrong wife if it had come before. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought he might appreciate, because he had a few problems himself. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. Are you the only racing driver that's ever been knighted 
in England? No, 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 no. Now, now we've got the first one. The first one knighted in racing was actually Jack Brabham, of course, because he's in Australia. And I think the knighthoods—I don't know how it works—but uh, certain countries of the empire uh, are given a certain amount, and Jack got it. He was the first one, and um, then I got mine. You know, that much later. Oh, and there are a couple of other things. Jackie Stewart is also a. a yeah, he 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 followed me actually. Okay. And Frank Williams, who who did the Williams car, he's been knighted as well. Oh, okay. But you were the first. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Well, super. That's great. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Now, looking back in retrospect, okay. And you know, and you you stopped motor racing and officially, so to speak, in 1962. Had yeah. you gone on, okay, and the other racing, let's say Formula One, Can Am racing, uh, sports car racing, which form of racing do you think you would have enjoyed a great deal? Had you been able to do it or desired uh, any to do? of it? I mean, if I, carry, if I hadn't had my accident, I'd be, I would have carried on till. I mean, Fangio retired. He was the last world elite world champion. He he retired when he was. Uh, Fancy was 47 years old when he got his last title. Title, so I mean, it was a long, long time to go. I mean, as long as you're fit. I mean, you need to be fit because when you're you're racing for three hours in a car in, in the heat and everything, it's it's pretty uh, pretty tiring. What were your thoughts on? Did you did you follow a lot of racing too after you got out of it? Uh, yes, quite a bit, quite okay. a bit. What I mean, th- I was over here. I was, I was Johnson Wax. Um, you know, the people who made the, the car waxes. So I was their director of racing because they they sponsored uh, different things in in the Can Am series. What do you think of racing today? Well, I'm, I must say, I think I think the cars now are so sophisticated. That's the problem. The cars are now so good that the driver has less opportunity of demonstrating his skill over the other guy. I mean, in other words, we quite often see, shall we say, ten or fifteen drivers uh, all within one second of each other, which which is not, uh, a bit unreal. So, well, okay. See, like, and I've always taken a position that a lot of the racing today is, and because they try to keep the cars too close and too similar, not so much in F1, but definitely in IndyCar, definitely in NASCAR and, and some of the other races and sports car races, that it's almost turned into spec racing. And so it does kind of re- depend on driver's skill. But just like you said, the cars are so sophisticated that the drivers really all they have to do is hang on, push a button, step on the gas pedal and go. Well, they do need a certain, you know, certain, certainly a, a, a great talent to do it. But I think I think their their contribution to success now, I think, would be shall we say five percent. I think back to Fangio's time, my time, probably the driver had a twenty five percent amount of towards success. Hmm. Interesting. How about vintage car racing? Now I know you're fairly active in that. And uh, vintage car racing. How long have yeah. you been doing that? And well, uh, share I some thoughts. I retired from that actually last year. Okay. I got to, to 82, and I thought probably that, that I should give it a pass. But I did enjoy it. Um, and, and obviously, uh, the thing people have to remember, and that is you're, if you're racing cars that we raced in the 50s, they're just as unsafe as they were then. Or I won't say best as unsafe because they're obviously a new materials, but they're still the same cars. Do you- when you were vintage racing these cars, for example, and yeah. and you've driven them all, you've, you've vintage raced Formula One cars and sports cars and many of the cars that you drove back in the day, did you, in vintage racing, in, in, in a vintage racing setting, did you push the cars as hard as you did back then or did you just kind of back off a little bit? Oh, no, I pushed them as hard as I, as I could. I'm sure that, that my threshold of fear had got that much closer that I, wasn't, I would not, not consider I'd be as quick uh, at my age, or you know, as, as I was when I was twenty, that's for sure. Okay, <laughs> you know. And of the courses that you drive, okay, now you obviously there's the big, huge event in Goodwood, and then of course you'll be at Monterey next week. You'll be at the Laguna yeah, Seca. Exactly. Um, which of the tracks, let's say in the United States, on the vintage race circuit, did you really enjoy a lot? Oh, just the same again. I mean, the uh, the one I liked best a lot was Laguna. Okay. The corkscrew, and then it's got the downhill, yeah, exactly. and then the, and the hairpin, and everything. Yeah, that's a good. That's a nice track. It, it really is. It is a nice track. What's Goodwood like? I've never been there, so uh, give us good, some. Uh, Goodwood is much trickier than it looks. Is it, it really? It's no. Yes, it's nowhere near as nice as Laguna, quite honestly. But um, it, it's it's still a pretty nice circuit. There are a couple of places where you've got you've got to be careful, um, but but otherwise the whole setup is very very well done. I must say. Okay, and there's usually a fairly good turnout for the Goodwood uh, Festival in there. They had 143,000 people last year over the three days. 
which is amazing. And what is more amazing is that Lord March, who runs it, you can't buy a ticket at the gate. You've got to, every single ticket is pre, pre-booked, prepaid, wow. I mean. That's interesting. Which is remarkable, really. Another perspective I'd like to uh, find out from you. Motorsports racing in Europe versus motorsports racing in the United States. From a fan base, how do you compare the two? I think the fans in Europe are inclined to know a bit more about it because because that's where the home of it is. I mean, we do race over here, but very little. Uh, so I would I would think probably that. Okay. And would you agree, because I know a lot of the other drivers have said the same thing, that F1 is probably the pinnacle of racing Oh, yes, it is. Uh, yes, certainly it is. I mean, because it's the most sophisticated and all you know, the incredible things that are done. And I mean, it really is. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's enjoyable. I mean, some, mm-hmm. of, some of my most enjoyable races were in Australasia. You go over there in the winter and race over there in, in, in uh, New Zealand and Australia. And of course, absolutely fantastic. Would you say that IndyCar in the United States is about as close to Formula One as you could possibly get? Yes, I would. I, I think uh, I think the IndyCar actually. I think I think I would rather see an Indy race than the Formula One race. I reckon. It's, I think it's more. It is more competitive because of the limitations. Okay. Because you know the tires aren't quite the same, and this, that, and the other. I think that. But I think it makes for better racing. It's yeah. It does. Okay. Well, it seems that in IndyCar racing, again, I always jokingly say, you know, it's high dollar spec racing, but the IndyCar races are relatively close. Where if you look at Formula One racing, the cars do tend to get some distance between them. Is that a fair statement? Um, yes, it is. You, you get, you usually get two or three bunches of cars, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I must say, I, I do think that the IndyCar racing over here is, is good value. I must say that. Okay. Um, you have a website. Tell us a little bit about your website for a minute or two. We've got a few seconds left. Well, my, my website is, is, is uh, www.sterlingmoss. Remember, the sterling is with an I, not an E. No value to my name. And, um, you know, that's used as, as websites get used, I suppose. Okay. So if they want to find out some information about you, they can find out there's history on there, there's uh, oh, yeah. photos oh, on oh, there. Oh, yeah, there's qu- quite a lot of stuff there. Okay, super. Now, you're going to be in Monterey next week. What are you, uh, are you uh, hosting something? Are you a... No, I, I'm a judge at the, at the Conco Delegance. Okay. And um, I'm, I'm just going over there to do, do, do appearance, you know, give, give, I think I've got a, giving a talk, and I'm giving another one on the way back in, uh, in, um, at Lime Rock. Uh, and then I'm going home after that. Well, she so have to make a living, and they make a living by selling my time. But, I'm sort of <laughs> international prostitute. You know, you need to be <laughs> calling me up. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to thank my guest this evening, my very special guest, Sir Sterling. Right? Did I say it right this time? That's correct. Exactly. Okay. Probably one of the greatest living race car drivers today. And let me ask you this real quick. Would you say the 50s, you know, when we turn, we talk in terms of the golden era of racing, yeah, would you yeah. say the 50s were the golden era of racing? Oh, without a doubt. Yes, okay. absolutely. I, I've got to say that, in my opinion, and I'm a huge fan of 50s and 60s racing, mainly because I think there was true innovation, true pioneering, and drivers were drivers and men were drivers and drivers were men. I mean, I, I you know, maybe I'm just kind of stuck in the past a little bit, but I have so much admiration for drivers like you and what you guys have accomplished because you basically set the, the stage basically for, for all the drivers today. Yeah, but we we had a ball, believe me. I mean, you know, the drivers we were all all friends, and we'd fight like hell once once the flag drops. But we we're all all good friends, and every I, everyone I think you speak to, you'll find they had fun. Wow, that's super. Well, maybe just maybe I might be out there next week, and if I get a chance, I'm certainly going to try to give you a call, and uh, hopefully we'll get together and we'll sit down and be able to chat for a few minutes, and maybe even have a cup of tea. What do you think? That sounds good. Okay. I like, mind you, I like your coffee as well, so don't worry. Okay, that's good. All right. Well, Sir Sterling, I want to thank you very much for coming on to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, our special guest for the evening. Be sure and check out his website. And uh, in the meantime, everybody, drive carefully, stay safe, love your family, tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars next week.